Uh, let's take a moment and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at a parable uh, about a man who placed his treasure in the wrong place. It's from Luke 12, verses 13 to 22. I'm going to see if I can back this up a little bit. There we go. All right. Before I read, just a little context. Uh, at this point, for the sake of some context, Jesus was journeying to Jerusalem. Um, he's doing some focused teaching was for his own disciples. Uh, it's filled with lots of hard sayings. Um, I was looking at the passage I'm going to be preaching on next week when some of my unsaved family is going to be at our church. Uh, I looked at it this morning and it's about how Jesus came to bring division, a sword between your family. Um, this whole section on discipleship is kind of like this. And yet, at this particular point that we're going to read, Jesus is switching from talking quite a lot about, teaching quite a lot about, uh, what it looks like to trust him in the midst of a, a hostile culture to the danger that money and possessions have for total devotion to God. So uh, let's, with that in mind, listen to what Jesus has for us, starting in verse 13 of chapter 12. Some in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this word. Uh, thank you for the sobering part of your word we've already heard from the book of Joshua. Uh, forgive us for how uh, sometimes we can seemingly be so light about your truth and your commands in our hearts and lives. And uh, Father, we ask this morning that you would remind us of your holiness and your kindness, that you would help us all to uh, really do business with the very things that you have taught us, Lord Jesus, uh, to not think about other things, but to consider your words and how you want us to live and how we can believe them. God, I pray that they would come with all their full force uh, of conviction and encouragement uh, for all of us, and myself included. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking about life and trusting God and ministry and those kinds of things with uh, a friend and member of our church a couple of weeks ago. And we were reflecting on uh, how there were many sayings, hard sayings, in this section of the gospel. 
and how I had just preached on the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin, which is a particularly uh, difficult passage. But then I had said to him, you know, in my own heart as I think about the things that are coming up in the Gospel of Luke, I think that this text, the text that's right before us today, is probably one of the hardest to preach on. And it's not difficult because um, it calls forth hard things or that it's hard to interpret. Um, It's particularly difficult, I think, because of how we're trying to gauge Jesus' intentions here. Um, How does he really want us to live based on this? What kind of lifestyle does he want for us? What kind of giving does he want from us as a result of this? I think part of the difficulty arises from the fact that Jesus often speaks in very extreme words intentionally. He was a very good teacher, obviously the best. So he says things like, cut off your right arm or sell all of your possessions. If you look down at verse 33, and he's making a point, but he doesn't actually want us all to sell all of our possessions necessarily. I think that's difficult in itself, and that's even harder when you try to balance our own cultural conditioning with being well off. Um, At least by historical standards, think about this. Not long ago, a couple hundred years ago, if you lived in Britain and were an average person, you just had a miserable existence. Um, So everyone left and came to create the greatest country on earth, the U.S. No, um, (laughs) Canada. Um, but, But seriously, even when you got here, life was hard in the extreme. I came across this interesting part of Canadiana recently. It's about settlers to Peterborough, of all places. Listen to this description. Uh, During the first few years, great difficulties were often felt in procuring necessary provisions with which to support life. They all had to be brought all the way from Port Hope and Colburg in the most laborious manner and in total absence of the most ordinary roads. Under these circumstances, it was not to be wondered at that whole families were often for weeks without tasting bread, and that herbs and succulent roots of the rich woods were often called into requisition to lengthen out our scanty fare. Think about that. That's like freezing cold shanty houses and go outside and pick some roots so you don't die of hunger. Um, We just don't know life where there's any real challenges to having basic housing and eating, right? Even those that are struggling the most of us. So I think part of the difficulty is that. And then also part of the difficulty of thinking about Jesus' words here are just how different we in particular can feel in response to them on our own particular situation. You can live in our city and be on a tight budget and have needs and honestly feel very stress-filled um, and feel the absence of certain things that other people have, right? Home ownership and so forth. And that is very different at times when or if you aren't on a very particularly tight budget. Um, I think if this passage addresses one side of that, it might be to those not on a tight budget. Jesus is relativizing possessions for his followers and really helping us think about the importance of not being rich in material goods, but rich toward him. But that's really too simplistic. This is for all of us. And I hope that God helps us feel this teaching and feel some of the challenge of the stewardship of it, but also feel the encouragement and the comfort uh, that these words are meant to bring as well. So uh, I want to do that. And before we look into it, let me just give one last reminder. Um, And that is the the challenge, too, of... um, Massive cultural idols, I guess. 
It's the hardest thing to see the things that are the biggest idols and confront us all because they're so part of everyday life. They're like the water you swim in, right? So they're very hard to see because they're just present everywhere. What else would be one of those things in the top category of cultural idols if it wasn't material wealth and possessions and money for us, right? So I'm just saying that to say, be aware of that as we look into this part of God's word. Be open to what he might want to say and do in your life. Don't assume too much, but really try to hear with me uh, what Jesus would have us hear. So here's where I want to go today. I want to first unpack this teaching. The caution that Jesus gives and the, the exchange that he has is very obviously tied to the parable that he gives. They shed light on one another and the flow goes together. We're meant to hear them as a unit. So I really want to try to unpack them so we can see them in the light of one another. And then after we unpack the text, what I want to do is I want to think about how we apply it in some particular precise ways and think about what it really looks like to gauge Jesus' intention. So I want to make some observations from what we've looked at after we unpack it. So unpacking this teaching, and then I'm going to make six observations about money and possessions to try to help us think a little bit more specifically and particularly. So let's unpack this, and let's look at the initial exchange and caution that Jesus gives here in verses 13 to 15. Let me read it for us again. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We can understand how this would unfold. Jesus, as he's being referred to here, even as a teacher, um, had this role. People were often coming up to him, asking him questions. Uh, that was very typical of that time. People would come up to rabbis and ask for their help and list them, sort of like people do pastors today. Um, it's maybe a little bit harder to see why Luke organizes this this way. If you think about the flow, uh, he's been talking about how you live in the face of persecution. And maybe the connection here is that um, that persecution often involves a social ostrac- uh, being socially ostracized in such a way that it could make having a living, making a living difficult. Uh, maybe the attraction of security over against rejection is part of this. So Jesus is enlisted, though, to resolve this dispute between two brothers. That's verse 13. And Jesus responds to the person in verse 14 by saying, Man. Um, those vocatives, addresses, direct addresses, man, um, can either be harsh or gentle. Um, I often hear it when we read the sections of teaching or, or narrative where Jesus addresses women, right? He says, woman, and it often sounds like, you know, very harsh, and it's actually meant to be kind and warm. Um, here, it's certainly of the second part. It's meant to be a rebuke. And he's rebuking this man here. And uh, what he does is he has this sort of subtext. Um, He doesn't address it just yet, um, but he clearly wants these two brothers to see that there's something more important than even figuring out how to divide their inheritance. 
And they're going to call him good teacher, or they're going to call him teacher. He's going to go on and teach them about true discipleship and how things like your view on possessions have to change if you're following Christ, um, including, um, you know, the, the things that they're trying to work out, like inheritance. Now, not that they didn't need to be arbitrated. Jesus wasn't saying that, but he wants them to see these things in their right light and see the priority here. So Jesus refuses their kind of question and the role that they try to slot him into. And instead, in verse 15, what he does is he addresses the disposition that he sees that's below the question between these two brothers. And he gives them a caution, and then he gives them a reason to back up that caution. So he, he cautions them. He says, be on guard against all covetousness. Um, the word Jesus uses means simply to have the desire for more. Um, and Jesus says, be on guard. Uh, be actively watching out for, carefully aware of, because the situation is dangerous, right? That's what be on guard re- assumes, that there is a danger to guard against. And he says, be on guard against covetousness or greed. Your translation might have one or the other. In every form and instance, all covetousness. And the reason he gives he says, is that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, of material goods. So he's helping us see greed distorts. It makes you feel like life does consist in those things. Like you need to really have all that stuff. And yet, he, he doesn't yet even address what life does consist of, but he very cl- clearly tells us first that life most certainly does not consist of having an abundance of possessions. Receiving the inheritance might feel life-changing, right? Um, But the truth is that it isn't essential or foundational to life. Um, Would it be very helpful probably to receive that inheritance? Yeah, absolutely. But if life is good, it's not going to be good because of that. It's going to be good ultimately in this life and and the next life for deeper reasons. And if life is bad that inheritance ultimately isn't going to fix it. Now, after Jesus does this kind of interaction, to reinforce his point, he gives a parable. And the parable helps us understand the danger of possessions, and he also does then positively tell us what life does consist of. So he tells this parable that follows, and he explains these things. He, he tells the story of a man who's very prosperous in 16 to 19. And then he describes God's response to this man. And then he tells, Jesus does his own explicit point of telling this parable like Jesus often did. So let's read it. It goes from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, uh, end of our section. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully... And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared... Whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, Jesus could have used a different illustration, but he's speaking to a largely rural agrarian society. So he speaks about a farmer here, but the rich farmer just really stands in for human beings seduced by greed. So he could have been talking about that, whether it was a peasant or a prosperous person, a craftsman, a lawyer, a nurse, a teacher, whatever it would be. And along with that, um, like Jesus' parables often do, he incorporates an element of surprise here. And the surprise is that the man has this perfectly natural dilemma. This man's additional uh, wealth just fell into his lap, right? He came by it honestly. God prospered this man's land. And yet that blessing also came with a problem, came with the problem of stewardship. He had this large crop and nowhere to put it, so he prudently reflects and thinks about his situation and what he has to do. And yet, even as this is going on, you start to see this hint that there's at least a problem in his perspective. There's one stylistic feature that keeps coming up through the parable, and that really is the pronoun my. It's my crops, my barn, my grain, my goods, my soul. There's this self-centered self-interest that kind of oozes out here, which is often the product of earned wealth, isn't it? Not always, but often. And he decides, what I'll do is I'll renovate. I'll tear down my old barns and I'll big, build bigger ones and I'll have plenty of space for my grain and my goods. And with that plan in place, he kind of feels like everything's as it should be, right? He decides, okay, everything's good. He feels a sense of security and he feels like now I can take it easy. I can live the good life. I can relax and enjoy but God says to him, what? Fool, this night, right? This very night, your soul is required of you. And fool there isn't just uh, simply stupidity, but it has all those Old Testament overtones of, or undertones of uh, moral issues and a, and a lack of sensitivity towards God. And, and why? Because the years of ease that this man had eagerly been anticipating were snatched from him right away, right? Um, the time for him to stand before God came and he wasn't ready. And all the possessions that he had acquired, um, whose would they be, right? That's the, that's the ironic and tragic question that le that's left lingering at the end, right? Whose possessions will they be? Well, whoever's they are, they certainly won't be his and they won't be doing him any good. And Jesus concludes then with his explicit point. He says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Letting yourself be focused on accumulating wealth and things for yourself and failing to take an account for God and the will of God is so short-sighted and foolish, Jesus reminds us. From a natural perspective, uh, from a human perspective, it's fairly kind of common in a natural way to do life, right? And yet when you consider eternity and God, when they're factored in as they should be, um, you see it's absurd and actually tragic. That's what Jesus, I think, wants us to feel, both how natural it is to go that course and yet how wrong and tragic it is. Now, 
Just to summarize, I think Jesus is saying to us, don't be foolish. Guard against greed. That's the major caution here. Guard against greed because things easily can take up more of a place in our lives than we even intend them to do, right? That, that happens very, very easily. And he's saying, but remember, life does not consist in having things. Life consists in knowing God. Life consists in Him. Be rich towards God, not rich in this life. Now, what I want us to think about is how should we and should we not take Jesus' words here? And what does it really look like to apply these carefully and in a real way? Um, And to do that, I want to move on from unpacking this teaching and I want to think about these observations. I want to make six observations about money and possessions. And by observations, I mean I want you to, with me, observe these things and see for yourself that these are really right in Jesus' teaching because I want those observations to come home with authority. I want them to be... uh, things that we feel that require things of us and call us to things. And the right way to do that in this context, I think, is to observe specific things for ourselves here. So let's think about this. Six observations about money and possessions that flow from Jesus' teaching here. Here's the first one. Number one, wealth is not sinful. Wealth is not sinful. Now, Jesus does not condemn wealth here. Riches and possessions, we'll talk about this again in just a moment, do come with inherent dangers. Uh, but what Jesus condemns here is the accumulation of wealth, wealth for self, and he condemns the distraction of possessions and wealth in ways that they very easily distract us from living and being rich toward God and pursuing God. But the issue is not the wealth. The issue is not that the man's fields prospered. The issue is, what did he do with it then? And how did it influence his life? Money's universal, right? It affects us all. Some Christians consider it unspiritual to think about um, finances. And yet Jesus often, though, condemns um, or has harsh words to say for those who have been given and don't carefully think about what they've been given and steward those things well for his kingdom's sake. Um, and, and we could add to that some of the greatest, godliest men that we think about all the time were some of the richest, right? Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon, wealthy, godly men. So I just want to say here, let's not, let's not think otherwise. Money is neither good nor bad in itself. Um, It has inherent dangers, but it's neither good nor bad in itself. It's what you do with it and how you feel about it that can be so destructive. That's number one. Wealth is not sinful. Number two, possessions come with temptations. Possessions come with temptations. I remember uh, the first time I saw an iPhone. Um, I was in Rockaway Beach and uh, we had just done a baptism at the beach, and we were at the butler's home. This was in New York. They had this beautiful big home right along the beach, basically, and they had this massive barbecue to celebrate these baptisms. And I remember I was standing in line waiting for some of this barbecue food, and Dario Nunez took out this thing. <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is 2007. This is iPhone 1, right? But I remember him taking it out and looking at it and be like, man, that thing is Stunning. It's amazing, right? The whole screen is a phone. This is crazy. Look at the pictures on it. Um, 
I know if you're born more recently, you think that's absurd, but um, it's pretty awesome to see it for the first time. Um, I also remember uh, when a very important truth crystallized for me a few years later, um, when I was reading an article about technology that pointed out that we tend to view technology just really in respect to its benefits. And we often, not anymore because there's been so much detriment, but at least at that time, um, we, we often fail to account for the drawbacks, the detriments, count the cost, uh, the dangers. We, we don't really particularly think about those enough. Um, there's two twisted strands about the negative part of possessions and money here. And we need to unwind them carefully in Jesus' teaching. And the first of those two is to see clearly that possessions come with temptations. They're not sinful in and of themselves, but possessions and property comes with inherent temptation. You know, look, Jesus could have been describing life uh, here in Toronto in the 21st century just as much as he was describing um, life back then, right? Almost nothing has changed. The man uh, prospers and he becomes self-focused. He prospers and becomes indulgent. He prospers, feels like he doesn't have anything to worry about, and he begins to relax and take it easy and enjoy a life of comfort and ease. I mean, that's no different than today, right? That's, That's how these things often naturally unfold for human beings. That's just how it often goes. That's the natural course of how possessions and prosperity often play out in one's life which leads to observation three. And that is that greed must be guarded against by all of us. Greed must be guarded against by all of us. I think we often think about, you know, the guy in the slick, tailored suit walking down Wall Street, right? He's going to you know, get everybody else to hold the bag while he racks up the profits. Um, it's Scrooge and J.D. Rockefeller. And yet Jesus' words here need to be taken to heart by us. Um, that the fact that he tells us to guard against all greed means that he means these words for us. The desire to have more is a real danger for all of us. And I think along with that comes the real question, okay, is it, is it okay to seek to have more then? Um, to improve your situation that works so that things aren't as tight each month, to want a home, to pursue a better paying job, Um, And I want to say, yes, absolutely it is. Um, It's good in this context, I think, to affirm for all of us that it's okay and good and it can be wise to pursue those things. Scripture affirms that in places like Proverbs 21, telling us the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. It's wise to plan and pursue. And yet, and here's a massive qualification. We know that we're supposed to hold those things with an open hand and have to be very aware of our own heart. Um, We know that we can often want things too much. And Jesus tells us here, guard against that. There's a fine line, right? But that line is there. And if we're going to obey Jesus' caution here to guard against all greed, it's going to take an awareness of our own thought life an awareness of our desires, and I think often a comparison of our desires, right? I want this thing, but how much do I want the things of God and the kingdom of God and involvement in my church and all those kinds of things? 
So I think to obey Jesus' caution here, to guard against all greed, one of the things that we have to realize is that we really have to know ourselves and be willing when we do see greed to end it, to let things go, to pray in the contentment, uh, to say, I'm going to let this desire or this thing go for a season or maybe even forever if that's what it takes because greed is where uh, the danger of possessions is set on fire. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a dangerous place. So we have to guard against all greed. Um, that, that's part of discipleship, Jesus says. If you're going to follow him, uh, no matter who you are, part of what that's going to look like, especially for us in our life, uh, in our culture, is that all of us need to have our defenses up and our hearts kind of um, examined when it comes to what we want and how we want more and guard against all greed. Here's observation number four. The fact that life does not consist of an abundance of possessions is deeply encouraging. (laughs) The fact that life does not consist in abundance of having material possessions is very encouraging. For people who know what it's like to feel discouraged and discontent, it's heartening to be reminded that life does not consist in all those things that we might want. Um, It's hard to feel content in a culture that spends billions of dollars a year to intentionally make you feel discontent, right? To make you feel like actually what you need in life is just to have more. Um, That's what our world is about. Um, So it's exciting and it's good to know that that is just not true, right? That message is not true. Contentment is totally possible even when we're not keeping up with everyone else. And, And you know, for those times when you do have to face deprivation, whether it's maybe going to be for... Uh, for some reason connected to following Jesus, or maybe it's displacement because of war, whatever it might be, um, an earthquake. Um, It's good to know in faith that we can hold on to this truth. And even as we feel, I'm sure, the sorrow of lost things, that life does not consist in that. And that life is going to be okay if we have God, and that's it, period. And believe that. Uh, He is what life consists of. And if we have Him... And we really can be okay. Observation number five. A purely selfish accumulation of wealth is sinful. And that is what Jesus condemns here. A purely selfish accumulation of wealth is sinful. The first of those two strands about negative, uh, the negative side of money and possessions that I want to untwist for us is how possessions come with temptations. The second part is that selfishly accumulating wealth for oneself is sinful and condemned by God. Um, This man, this rich man, when he had this bumper crop, when he had this great crop, this prosperous crop, he came to the conclusion that, oh, okay, now my job is over. And yet what he should have seen is that, in fact, his stewardship had just begun, right? God had given him that extra as a stewardship entrusted to him to do something with He thought his job was over, and yet it had just started. And that, I think, would be even more obvious to some of us, or all of us, if we lived in a more rural, especially a a time when there was subsistence farming. Subsistence farming basically means, and I guess just as an aside, that's kind of what he, he would have been doing, or at least everyone was doing basically in Palestine at the time, 
Subsistence farming means that you, you eke out a living. You make just enough crops. Uh, you, make, you grow just enough crops and you have just enough livestock for your family if things go really well and there's basically never going to be anything left over. So in this man's case, the fact that he has this massive bumper crop means that he better be willing to sell some of that stuff to his neighbors because if, the, if he has extra, you can be almost sure that his neighbors desperately are going to be in need of some of it. So he had been given more so that he could do something good with it. Listen to Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who's really teaching us nothing more than what Jesus said in this section of the Gospels. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, who charges us, saying, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You hear the balance there. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they might take hold of that which is truly life. Uh, to put a very fine point on that, I would say that Jesus is calling most of us to give more of what we have away. Not all of us, but I think generally Jesus is calling most of us to give more of what we have away. God has given us more so that we can give away more. That's what scripture says. Um, we've been given more so that we can give more. And because what you do with your finances and your life shows what you value in your heart. And what you do with your finances and your money shapes your heart. That's the real thing to see here too. Right? You give away more, just like Jesus is saying here and in 1 Timothy. And what happens is, as you give away more, your heart moves to what you're doing. Right, What you start to value more starts to be valued more in your heart. You use the particular life that God has given you and assigned to you in a way that enables rather than hinders faithfulness. So you invest in eternity, and by doing that, you generously love people in need of the gospel and temporal needs. You use your money to bless others and do good instead of just storing it up for yourself. And by doing that, what you do in the end is you incline your own heart in a greater way to eternal things. The more you invest in the kingdom, the more your heart will desire and delight in the kingdom. Um, you've been given this you know, great tool, instrument, if you have extra, to revive your own heart and direct your own heart to the things of God as you pour what you have into them, you will start to value them more because what you do shapes your heart, right? We often think about the reverse dynamic that, you know, and, and we should as Christians, obviously, we, we often reflect on hypocrisy and we want to have what comes out of us be what's inside us. But if you think about what Jesus says, he often thinks about the reverse dynamic and says, you know, what you do will end up shaping your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, last observation, number six. Life does consist of being rich toward God. Life does consist of being rich toward God. Following Jesus transforms our perspective on life. And a big part of that is possessions. And at the heart of that transformed perspective is the fact that this life is passing. We know that. Um, it's not going to last forever. This life is transient, and it gives way to the real 
time the reality of having to stand before God one day and give an account for our life, just like this man pictured in the parable did. And at that point, what you acquired in life won't be coming with us, and what will matter is how you used it. How you used it, what you did with it, how you felt about it. And if you allow your life to go down that all-too-common path of accumulating things for yourself and failing to be rich toward God, we're going to see just how short-sighted and foolish that is. And if you've not gotten right with God and not understood that life is not about accumulating things but knowing God, um, you, won't, you, know, you, you won't necessarily see it now, but on that day you will see just how absurd and tragic it was that you lived your life the way that you did in this life. John Piper, uh, if you know him, paints a vivid picture of this in a little illustration that I heard him use years ago and I want to read for us. He says, picture, I don't know why the number, but picture 269 people entering eternity in a plane crash. Before the crash, there's a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, a missionary and a missionary kid on the way back from visiting grandparents. Then after they crash, they stand before God, utterly stripped of every MasterCard, checkbook, credit line, image clothing, success books, and Hilton reservations. The politician, the executive, the missionary kid are on level ground with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands, but only what they brought in their heart. How absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day like a man who spent his whole life collecting train tickets and in the end was so weighed down by the collection he misses the last train. Just helps you feel the the foolishness of what often feels so natural and normal, right? Listen, a, a purely selfish accumulation of wealth is incompatible with true discipleship. That's what Jesus wants us to see, and to see that that incompatibility stems from the fact that we are going to leave this life to a new and lasting life, and we're going to stand before God when we do. So let's heed Jesus' caution here and remember what he's saying to us, that wealth is not sinful, but yet possessions come with temptations. And that greed has to be guarded against by us all, whoever we are. And that, in fact, it's deeply encouraging to remember the truth that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And that purely accumulating things for self is sinful. But but really what God desires is that we would be rich to Him. That life does not consist in having things, uh, but knowing God. And that the foundation that enables all of this is looking to God and trading those common anxieties we often feel about finances, trading those things for trusting Him, trusting in Him. Let's take a minute and let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Uh, Your truth, thank you for the wisdom and the power of Jesus' teaching. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would graciously save us from ourselves. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that uh, have felt um, the anxiety of thinking about these things because of needs that they might have. 
minister to them, encourage them, remind them uh, what it means to belong to you. Uh, help us all, Lord, to see uh, how you want us to relate to the things that we have and the things that we might desire. God, we pray that we would truly desire your kingdom, um, your church, your work, um, in real practical ways, um, far greater than the things of this world. Um, set us even more free by your Holy Spirit. Uh, God, do this work in us, we pray. And Lord, we ask that it would be uh, so that our lives would be uh, brighter light and that they would uh, be better examples to the people that we know and love that are close to us, that we would encourage one another more. Uh, so help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.